0: Welcome back to another episode of Awareness to Action the Enneagram podcast. My name is Creek and I'm with my identical co-host and guest, um, <laughs> <laughs> Mario Sicora. That doesn't say much for poor Rosario. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that, Creek. So we have Mario Sicora and our guest today is Abdul Hai. How's it going? Good. 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 Awesome. Everything
1: is fine. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, Abduhai is uh, what's now an old friend. I mean, we I think we first connected in 2013, uh, right. 10 years ago. Yeah. And um, so Abduhai is a, a Sufi sheikh and uh, a scholar and professor and a teacher of alternative medicine. Um, well, I was going to say based in Cairo, but uh, as we were talking about beforehand, uh, Abdohai's home is where the heart is. But when I first met him, he was in Cairo and uh, Abdohai had reached out to me about something in my book, Awareness to Action. He had sent me a email and I noticed in the address, in the signature under his name, uh, he was contacting me from Cairo, which I thought was really interesting. I'd never been reached out to from, uh, you know, by somebody from Cairo until then. So we started a dialogue by email at first and had some ni- a nice exchange and uh, kind of connected. And he invited me to Egypt. And, uh, you know, I've been been there many times since. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's always a pleasure when I get to see Abdul Haid. Yeah.
1: Same for me.
0: Yeah, Abdulha, can you can you think of a, a story, um, preferably embarrassing, of Mario that that you've
1: encountered? <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, I don't remember embarrassing stories. Oh, okay.
2: All right, all right. <laughs> no, 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 uh, no, no
1: stories. No, it was always it was pleasant. He stayed with us at our home, and I think we had yeah. some wonderful conversations because uh, I think that's how we, I really got to appreciate him as a person. Not just as an enneagram teacher, and I think that was important yeah. for me. Yeah, and yeah. that's how we really connected. That's great. Yeah.
0: So, can we just dive straight in and and let's? I'd love to hear just a little bit of your own personal journey when it comes to um, how you came into Suf- Sufism as well as the Enneagram. What's what's that story?
1: Well, the Enneagram is relatively late uh, in, in in my developmental journey uh the Sufism i Mario's heard it, but it, you know i I kind of have to yeah. condense it um i I always was interested in spirituality since I was about fifteen, but most of us in the West are allergic to religion, uh, especially God, mm. has a bad reputation, so we try to we tried to avoid the whole issue by going to the far east. And so many of us in the 60s and 70s ended up going to Japan or India or something like that. Now I went there virtually after I did my academic work, which I didn't really like, academia. Uh, I worked in an esoteric bookshop for about a year and a half. And that was my opportunity to read as much as I could about every possible weird theory that I could. (laughs) And of course, in, in university, I had bought the whole earth catalog. Uh, which was the other sort of weirdness that we were thinking. So it was just a natural, you know, progression from there. And when I met, um, I, I met a lot of sort of gurus that were visiting at the time. At that time, being sort of in the esoteric scene was a bit unusual. I mean, we were still sort of very fringy. And um, we had some people coming from India telling us to breathe from the left and the right nostril. And we had a, you know, a bunch of other things that went on. Um, but I wasn't really very impressed until this German guy showed up. And he, ha- he, like me, was sporting a white beard, very long white beard. And he dressed in two white cloths. And he looked very wise and he was very funny. And I kind of connected with him. And so uh, I asked him if I could come and stay with him. And at that time, I was working in the bookshop for free. And I was driving taxi at night uh, in order to support myself and driving ambulance for the American Medical Center occasionally on 24-hour duty. And so he said, yeah, come. I I live in Sri Lanka. And he'd been living in Sri Lanka for 40 years. And I, uh, of course, I didn't have any money. So two weeks later, I find 20,000 German marks in my taxi, and I took the money to the police, and they called me three days later, and they said, you know, you get a 15% finder's fee. So I said, oh, great. So I took the money, I flew to Mumbai, went to visit the ashram of Muktananda, who was a well-known uh, wow. swami at the time. Spent- sh-
2: oh, I didn't know that part. Yeah, yeah. I spent okay, three ahead, day- yeah. I spent
1: three days in Muktananda's ashram, but again, I wasn't very impressed. And I went south uh, to southern India and crossed over to northern Sri Lanka and stayed at the very tip of Sri Lanka for eight or nine months in an ashram with this German swami, Swami Gauribharam. But after a couple of weeks, I realized that he wasn't my sheikh, you know, he wasn't my guru or whatever. And so uh, we became very good friends. Uh, and he was very knowledgeable. He spoke about eight languages, Pali, Sanskrit, German, French, and he used to recite German poetry while walking along the beach at sunset in northern Sri Lanka. <laughs> and what a cliché. <laughs> what a cliché. And, uh, and I spent those eight months barefoot in two cloths and uh, 40 buckets from the well in the morning. And um, then uh, my money ran out. And I flew back from Colombo to Germany. And in Germany, of course, after having spent eight months barefoot, I couldn't take it. And I, my best friend was living in Beirut at the time. And so I uh, took the train to Athens and crossed over to Beirut. And uh, this was in uh, 1978. And the Civil War was in full, full bloom there. But my friends, well, I had two friends. One was teaching at the American University and the other one was teaching English in Beirut. And uh, I stayed there and I needed some work. So I started teaching German. There weren't very many expats. And at that point, I said to whoever is responsible up there, look, you're going to have to find me a teacher because I've tried. And (laughs) a week later, I get a telegram from one of the owners of the esoteric bookshop. And he writes in the telegram. You know, you had to write it in very short things. Go to Damascus to visit so and so, and at the tomb of so and so, and everything. And I and the guy was Jewish. The one that I was uh, in, the, in the bookshop was Jewish. So I thought maybe it's a Jewish guy in Damascus. I don't know. So I took this telegram and I, and in, at that time you took an international taxi from Beirut to Damascus, takes an hour and a half, you get out of the taxi and then you take a local taxi in Damascus. Now I didn't speak any Arabic. Later on I found the place that I'm going to, nobody in Damascus knows where it is. And nobody speaks English in Damascus. So I stopped, <laughs> so I stopped the first taxi and I show him the telex and he says, get in. And he drives me straight up there And it turns out he's a follower of the sheikh I'm going to.
2: Oh, wow.
1: And then when I entered the mosque where the sheikh was, it was like a different century, you know, people with turbans and robes. And there were only about maybe eight people or so, uh, mainly foreigners. And he was a Turkish sheikh living in Damascus, and he spoke English. And so he looked at me and he says, "Um, I've been waiting for you. And I said, OK. And as soon as I saw him, I realized that this is the this is the guy I want to be with I mean, because I'd seen so many before. And I started doing like they were doing. You know, I got up and did the prayer thing and the whatever. And so over the years as he was in Damascus, I would go from Beirut to Damascus as often as I could. I was working or if he was traveling, I would meet him somewhere. And so over a period of about 35 years, every winter and every summer because there's I was an academic both in Beirut and when I came to Cairo, I I uh, was learning Arabic in Cairo. But then I got a job uh, in the writing program. But like we said, there are four advantages to being an academic, and that's January, June, July, and August. And so, <laughs> and so that's what I did. Every January I went to see the Sheikh, and every June, July, and August. And by that time, I had met my wife also, and she also became connected to the Sheikh very much. And even with the children and so over a period of like 35 years every year we would go and stay with him and visit him wherever we were and a couple of years after I met him he then made me responsible for the group in Cairo because he knew that the one thing I hated most was the responsibility. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. What initially drew you to Sufism?
1: Uh, look, after my readings in all of these traditions, the main thing that draws you is the person. Mm -hmm. Even in regular teaching, the person that has the most influence on you as a person, right? We say the words that come from the heart have an influence. If they come from your head or anywhere else, they don't have any effect. So when the person is present with you as a person, and they affect you, that's how it happened. And I used to travel with the Sheikh in Europe, and the sheikh would maybe not speak about Islam or Sufism or anything like that, but people would come up to him and say, "You know, how do I join? What, what do I do?" You know, and this is often how it works. Uh, it's not about this, you know, this Western idea of even the Muslim idea of conceptually, oh, what a marvelous thing! I'm convinced, and you know, that doesn't work that way.
2: Tell us about Sufism um, for listeners who might not be familiar. Can you explain what Sufism is? <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> the, I guess the
2: abbreviated version.
1: <laughs> well, sort of from the esoteric point of view. The idea is that sure. every religious tradition has an outer and an inner tradition, what they call the exoteric and the esoteric. And so uh, in the Hindu tradition, you have it. In the Buddhist tradition, you have it. In the Christian tradition, Jewish tradition, and the Islamic tradition, you have a esoteric tradition which still conforms to the forms of the religion. In other words, even though they are looking for a deeper essence to the tradition, they also recognize that the the forms of the tradition themselves have mythic value. I mean, when you address, it's, it's a kind of symbolic value that you address when you operate within a religious tradition. So although... The person who's uninformed will see that it's a religious, uh, a, a relatively rigid framework. It actually keeps the system together. So the you, you know we use the analogy of a of a walnut, so that the the rigid shell of the walnut is the tradition, the religious tradition, and the inner core, the nut inside, is the meaning. That's Sufism in this case. If the Sufism would not survive if it didn't have that. rigid core to protect that rigid shell to protect it and the shell has no meaning if there's no nut inside so they're they're symbiotic they've also they always seem kind of in conflict because they're both looking at the same reality in different ways but the tradition itself is what what holds the the system together and that you know that's one of the things that mario and i have talked about in the enneagram the enneagram is not a religious tradition it has no uh, form to it, right? They invent a form, and that means also that the the the, symb- the mythic symbolic aspect is lacking. Uh, and that's, you know, if I mean again, this is from my this is my alternative background. If you know anything about Rupert Sheldrake, what we call morphic resonance—that meaning is contained in fields. These are. Energetic fields, they can't really, it's like you know, when 300 starlings fly in, in a group and don't crash into each other, it calls that. In biology, it's called morphic resonance. And in a sense, the religion is like a battery. It holds that those practices. When you go to a, a, a place where those practices have taken place over long periods of time, you feel the energetic charge there whether it's a church or a mosque or something like that and so uh when you tap into the tradition you're you're not tapping into just a ritual you're tapping into something that's kind of been charged over the years you know Hmm.
0: i'm trying to just reflect back just to make sure i'm understanding how how you're describing this So, so i'm a musician is it is it something along the lines of in order to to play in the band and and create the magic that is music you kind of have to know all this rigid theory and structure of chords of rhythm of subdivision and all this all these other sort of things and that's that's required in order for the thing to happen
1: yeah it's a, it's a good analogy but like mario says all models are
0: false <laughs> sure 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 <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah so uh, actually, it's not Mario's.
2: Uh, no, it's not. It's it's like like Mario has stolen, has stolen from somebody's somebody. <laughs> eyes. Yes. yes. Uh,
1: yeah. So it's a it's a possible analogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mm-hmm. thing is, is that the difference between the exoteric tradition and the esoteric one is that it's the difference between belief and faith. Belief is a set of principles like you know you say I'm believe in God, I believe in Muhammad as his prophet, I believe in angels, I believe those are beliefs, right? Faith is in something greater than the belief system which is behind the beliefs. And that can only be uh, experienced experientially. It's not something that you address conceptually. A belief is still a conceptual is still in the conceptual domain. But to experience it, Uh, and that's almost all the esoteric traditions are based on the idea that you have to do a practice in order to experience that without Mm. the experience. It's not real. It's just, you know, a belief, but which is okay. It has a core to it. And for, in a way we say, you don't want to deny people their beliefs because that would be unmerciful. Right. But it doesn't mean that there's more there at a deeper Mm. level.
0: So the walnut shell is the practice. Is the yeah yeah okay yeah
2: yeah what you have um, described applies to all, if not several. I mean, several, if not all, religions. How is Sufism different, or what are the key things that distinguish Sufism from other religions?
1: I can't. I can't really say. uh, How do we say? Uh, there is um, uh, there's, there was an interfaith conference at Snowmass in Colorado in the 1980s, and um, there was a Hindu Jesuit who was part of that uh, movement, and he, they came out with the the common principles of all the traditions and and many of the the points that they shared and things like that. But what he said was, he says. One of the things that you have in the new age is, you know, that uh, a lot of people say everything is one. You know, I mean, eventually all the old paths lead up to the mountain, to the peak, and everybody agrees on the one truth. And you know, but that's for new agey, you know, because it doesn't really work. Uh, and the <laughs> and in the interfaith conference, uh, you'll see where um, what he said was he says because reality is ungraspable. Yeah, I mean, if you want to call it God or whatever, you know, emptiness reality it's ungraspable it can, you cannot describe it. We have the cataphatic and apophatic ways you know where we have how how is God manifested and at the same time imminent and how is he transcendent right Reality or God is transcendent so the religions are an attempt to define what is undefinable. So he says basically it's like people who are in a closed room, looking out at reality through their separate windows. So they're seeing some aspect of reality, but they can't see the whole of it. It's not that you're going to be able to see all of that at once. It's, it's not going to happen, right? And it's determined by the very framework in which you're looking. So each tradition, culturally speaking, it has a particular framework. So in Sufism, the framework is the Islamic tradition and the language of Arabic. And if you see any of the old traditions, the language is actually quite important because the old languages are, not, are three-dimensional. English is two-dimensional. If you look at any translation of Sanskrit or uh, Hebrew or Arabic, words have a field of meaning. It would be the difference between a kind of sh- a shadow analogy would be Shakespeare and you know a modern computer manual. The, there's a field of meaning to the terminologies in the tradition that's not just the word. What's happened is in the third world, like in Arabic, they adopt English words for very specific one function thing. So they say, you know, like you save your file. They don't have an Arabic word for that. What they call they say, They make it into an Arabized English, Maseyiv. And if you want to be relaxed, you're Mereklis, right? it doesn't work (laughs) so that's the that's the thing and in in a tradition there's a whole field of meaning that's why it's you know i confront the problem of muslims who try to enter the hindu hindu world through yoga and it doesn't work because their whole cultural background is embedded in a framework and so I try to relieve them of the burden. I say, well, why, why don't you just use Arabic words instead of the mantras that are in Sanskrit, which you don't understand and which don't relate to you, right? And then it works better. So
2: this is very interesting. Our, our, we had a recent conversation with a friend of ours who um, is a student of um, traditional Indian philosophy. And she was talking to us a lot about the meaning of words in Sanskrit and the... Um, and how much the perspective is shaped by the language and vice versa. Yes. Okay. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm hearing the same thing from you. And uh, so it makes me curious as a, you know, as you as a Westerner going into a different culture, learning Arabic, um, what has that experience been like? I, I, I imagine there would be some challenges to it coming to the language late, but, it could also potentially give you some perspective on things that others might just take for granted. That's right. The
1: language. Yeah. So, I mean, my you know, my first sheikh was this Sheikh Naz, the, the Turkish sheikh. My second sheikh is my wife <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> because yes. she's a Arab from Aleppo, coming from a traditional background and speaks Arabic. And I I had to learn Arabic. And so a lot of my training was not in the Sufi tradition. It was just in Arab culture. Um, And there's a close relation between the Islamic tradition and Arab culture. It kind of, they're infused with each other. And so the whole concept of, let's say, You know, there's a saying in Arabic, uh, that the Arabs are characterized by generosity, right? And so you'll see, you'll see this. I used to survey my students in class and say, what would you want? Is the primary quality you want in a wife or a husband? And they, they always said generosity, generosity, not of money, but of time, of attention. And the, your inter, the interaction between human beings is very different. And, you know, I, I have a degree in medieval history, uh, and Arabic culture uses a lot of things that were lost in Europe and in history from the medieval period, where in daily life, you are reminded of God. You know, you have these expressions, praise be to God, inshallah, uh, whatever. You know, I, del- I, tell- I think I told uh, Mario, I took my wash to the guy who irons, and I said, when do I get it back? He says, if I am of the people of this world, next Tuesday. I said, you know, we don't get this in, in modern Western culture anymore, uh, right?
0: I
2: would immediately take my clothes back if someone said that to me here. I, I, I always interpret inshallah as it's not going to happen. No. But, uh, yeah, but, but can you practice Sufism without speaking
1: Arabic? Uh, there is an interface uh, where there are a couple of Sufi groups who operate in the West without m- much of the religious tradition, but we don't really regard them as Sufi groups they're a kind of adaptation and i don't want to denigrate that, but it's not the it's not within the tradition right and you can there are many 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 uh hundreds of thousands of Muslims or that belong to Sufi groups that are that know how to recite Arabic for their prayers, for example, but they may not know uh, the full meaning of all the words. But Sufism has adapted culturally to to many different areas and re- retained its core. Now, the core of the practice is usually encompassed in several sayings. One of them is, he who recognizes himself recognizes his Lord. Now, again, the word in Arabic here is Arafah so it has a field of meaning it doesn't it's usually translated he who knows himself knows his lord right but knowing is a mental process we say the one who recognizes himself in other words it's already within you you just got to recognize it right and so we call it the the uh, the purification of the self right this is how you uh, arrive at it and so you would have you have different stages. Uh, the self that commands to evil, that's the one who is unconscious. Then you have the, the self that blames itself, that begins to reflect and say, oh, Why did I do that? Well, I have two selves or I have multiple sub personalities. And then you have the self which uh, becomes at peace. And there's, you know, you can have seven categories or something like that. A lot of the, so there's a whole science to it uh, within the tradition.
2: You said earlier, it was interesting to me about um, recognizing your teacher and it not being about the teaching itself, but about the relationship. And so you, as a teacher, Mm. uh, and as you've been leading this Sufi group in Cairo for all these years, how does that shape your teaching?
1: Uh, The thing is, is that I tell people I'm not a sheikh. First of all, okay, Mm -hmm. because I don't fit the classical category of a sheikh. Because in the Islamic world, a sheikh has to have a certain knowledge of the Quran that he has memorized, or of the sayings of the Prophet, etc., etc. Now, and I don't get into religious arguments with anybody because I'm not a I'm not a scholar in that sense, right? Um, So, technically speaking, I am. We we say we don't say, this person is a Sufi. In fact, it's a kind of, if somebody says I'm a Sufi, uh, that's uh, that's a no-no. What you mm-hmm. say is, I am in training. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you die, maybe somebody could say he was a Sufi, but that's about it, right? <laughs> but, uh, so I'm, what the Sheikh gave me permission to do was to lead the the weekly vicar, the remembrance circle, and to give a talk and to give the initiation to the to the group; those are the things I'm authorized to do. But in our particular path, there's only one sheikh, yani, and then at this point, it's the son of the of, the, of my the, of my sheikh, etc. So I just simply am there to hold the space, so to speak. So in as part of, I think it's just a combination of things. So, for example, the fact that I became interested in alternative medicine and practiced for many years as a homeopath, that made a huge impact on me because I heard, you know, like five or six thousand people telling me their stories. And so this, and so that's why I say I came to the Enneagram late after I had done my homeopathy training, and I had been practicing visiting the sheikh, and m- meeting all kinds of people and seeing the variety of human expression. Then I, I saw the Enneagram. The Enneagram was a kind of a tool for me. It was, uh, it was a good tool to explain particular kinds of behavior. I mean, like you say, it's a behavior-predicting system, basically. And, um, and I found that very useful and and i know that some of the people in our group uh in germany in particular were using the enneagram quite a lot because it was so useful i think it's similar to you know Rohr's discovery of the enneagram for the jesuits i mean you know it would be yeah. useful for yeah. a priest to know what people were like right? right but it didn't go further than that because we saw what we saw was that the sheikh prescri- we we say in Sufism, what the sheikh says is a prescription. It's a prescription for your particular issue. So when you ask him for advice, he's going to give you that thing which you are struggling with. Right? So either most of the time he's a mirror. Most spiritual guides, if they're correct, and if they're good spiritual guides, they're simply mirrors. But, you know, I always tell this one story where this guy, this American guy, he, one of the things we're supposed to ask the sheikh for is marriage. So he, every year in London, we used to meet for Ramadan. We used to spend the whole month in Ramadan with the sheikh. And people would come from all over the world. And there was this one American guy who I knew. And he would go to the sheikh and he'd say, tell me who to marry. And the sheikh would tell him, you are free. So he'd go back to America. <laughs> and after seven years, he goes up to the sheikh and he says, listen, I'm fed up. Every time you tell me you're free, tell me who to marry. That's your job. So the sheikh says, go to Switzerland in Basel, up this mountain. There's a house, and there's this woman, and marry her. (laughs) So he said, fantastic. I finally got the right advice. So he goes to Basel, and the sheikh had visited this community the year before. They were a Hindu community. So he went up the mountain. He knocked on the door, and he says, is so-and-so here? And she said, no, she's down by the lake with her girlfriends. So he goes down to the lake and he says, is so-and-so here? I've been sent by the sheikh. And the woman comes out of the water stark naked and tells him, come on in and join us. (laughs) And so he was so shocked that he ran back to the village. This was before mobiles. He dialed his old girlfriend in Chicago, where he was from. He asked her if she was interested in marrying him. He then called the sheikh in London and said, can I marry my old girlfriend? He said, yeah, go ahead. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so what's the moral of that the moral is that, the moral is
1: that you can't see yourself you can't see how you are stuck yeah. and it depends it needs someone who has less ego than you to be able to say, listen, you know either you need a kick in the pants or you need something to... To push you, and it has to be experiential. It can't be something that's theoretical. It doesn't work.
2: So you start using the enneagram in this way that you know you're describing. One of the sort of lingering mythologies of the enneagram is that it's a it's a it came from the Sufis. Mm. Um, speak to that, please.
1: <laughs> you want me on record <laughs> or something, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In all, in all the years that I have spent in the Middle East, I have never heard a Sufi Sheikh mention the Enneagram. Right. And in all the literature, and I'm not an expert in Arabic literature or, or the, the yeah. mysticism of Sufism, I haven't read everything, but as far as I can tell, there's nothing in the literature either. Yeah. Uh, there is, strangely enough, in our, because we say there are 40 Sufi paths, it's a symbolic number, but the idea is, and especially in our group, there were some people from Gorgiev's group that came to see the Sheikh of my Sheikh in Damascus. Uh, the one from London, uh, I can't remember his name. He was a student of Gurdjieff's. and he came, yeah. and he talked, and we remembered this story. And he got he got some information from the Sheikh, and he returned to London, and uh, you know, he ha- had his own group and and everything like that. There was one of our sheikhs in America, Sheikh Hisham Qabbani, who invented a story. <laughs> now, I don't know why, okay. why he did that, but uh, I do not, it, later on, it was said that he denied having said that, right? That somehow we uh-huh. had it in our group, but there has never been any mention of this in our group, although some of the German people use the Enneagram later on, but nothing in the tradition at all All right. Now, that doesn't mean that it's because it's a behavioral pattern, patterning that you can observe. I wouldn't be surprised if spiritual leaders started to see patterns and say, oh, yeah, this guy fits in this pattern, that guy sees that pattern, but not systematically, not in that way.
2: Right, right. Yeah. Good. And there is a video on YouTube where Naranjo basically says, I made up the story about it coming from the Sufis because I was cribbing from uh, Oscar Wilde, who said, if you want people to take your ideas seriously, say somebody famous. And so Naranjo's way was to say, well, the Sufis said it. And it's been interesting because I've been hearing some Enneagram teachers now saying, well, Naranjo only said that to you know whatever, right that you know it really did come that way. so anyway yeah all right uh, <laughs> so y- you commented earlier about uh, I guess the Enneagram not having a shell in a, a spiritual way can you say a little bit more about that? I'm curious
1: Well the thing the thing is is that the Enneagram never I mean I gave that whole day workshop to the Egyptian Enneagram group telling them that the Enneagram is not Sufism, right. Because there are so many aspects to a spiritual practice that are not covered by the Enneagram. The fact that you need a particular kind of teacher, the fact that you need very specific practices that belong to a tradition, the fact that you need somebody to check to see your progress as to you know what you imagine... You know, there's that famous story. I, I don't know if you told that story where the guy says, uh, You know, God told, they're in the insane asylum, and the guy says, God told me that I'm Jesus Christ. And the guy next to him says, I didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, I don't remember if that was me, but I'll take credit. For it. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> I've yeah. never heard it coming. <laughs> okay, from Okay, well you, then so. it must not yeah.
1: have been me. Maria yeah. Jose hasn't heard
2: it because
1: I'm whole inventory of your
2: stories. Yeah, because people come up
1: with lots of things. You know, I see. I had a dream of and whatever. And the the one of the one of the things about spiritual traditions in almost all the traditions is this what we call a spiritual chain of transmission. This chain of transmission is important because it guarantees, to some extent, the quality of the transmission. Because somebody has had to go through some kind of training to be able to identify whether or not what you're seeing or experiencing is part of a delusion or whether it's an actual spiritual experience, right? (laughs) And it's very important to understand that differentiation, right? And people come along to me and tell me all kinds of stuff, but you know i i have one person who came in who came to me recently and said to me you know i've become convinced that the earth is flat and you know what's my reaction i said to her look i don't know if the earth is flat or not but why do you need to believe that the earth is flat that's what's really important right Mm -hmm. because i can argue from one day to the next but why is it so important for you to believe that the earth is flat right Mm -hmm. so that's that's the kind of thing that you you encounter as a spiritual teacher. You know, people come to you and you have to say, well, where does this fit in? Right? And so the Enneagram doesn't have any of these checks or balances built into it, nor does it have a very specific practice unless they borrow it from somewhere else. And this is what I've seen. Let's meditate. Let's do some psychological deep work. Let's do whatever. So you're kind of making a, a a mishmash and it doesn't really hold because it doesn't have a, a metaphysical framework they create a metaphysical framework but i'm sure it's coming from somewhere else
2: yeah so and our view and, and and you and i have had this conversation before but our view is that the enneagram is simply a tool that can then be integrated into a broader spiritual practice or whatever sort of practice but That that practice needs to be um, consistent, well-formed, you know, rigorous to some extent, um, and not just this sort of mishmash that you're describing there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. When I hear you speak, and for example, the why argue about the earth being flat or not, uh, it's a different approach than I might take and uh, and it it so it sounds from my, to my enneagrammatic ears like a nine-ish approach or a nineish response so i am curious about how your enneagram type shapes your world view to the extent that you
1: you think about that well i i first encountered i i think i told you that the my sheikh the one of the very first comments that the sheikh made about me was that was in 1978. He said to me, "Abdul Hai never gets angry," and then I told you I got married.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I had hidden the anger so well, you know, and he just saw that. I mean, I was just, you know. So that was an example for me later on that, yeah, these guys they perceive this, but how does it affect? And the other, the other nickname that I had was Abdul Hyde. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, it, 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 of course it influences. And like I say, my wife yeah. is my second sheikh, you know. Like right. I'm the, we have this expression in Arabic. Uh, it's a very Egyptian expression. The word is hadir. And in my Enneagram teaching, I tell them this. And the Arabs immediately know. Hadir means, all right, I'll do it right now. But it means I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, you know, she's the kind that wants it done right now. And I'm the kind that, right. you know, so in the, in the day, you see it in the daily things, right? And it's, uh, and maybe it has, maybe I'm not a confrontational type. But then on the other hand, I've learned because of my homeopathic practice to irritate people, to provoke them, which is not really typical. I mean. uh, so there are, I, I do see the patterning. All right, but it doesn't bother me. It's like okay, as long as it's not constricting my conceptual f- or metaphysical yeah. framework, which it doesn't, then it's right. okay.
2: Yeah, and 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 I think that's an important point, and I and I certainly didn't mean to in any way imply that it was a limitation on your perspective. And, you know, an example I I frequently use is the Dalai Lama. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I've seen the Dalai Lama speak a couple of times and I'm pretty convinced he's an Enneagram type seven, but I I don't see it as a hindrance. Right. I think he's I think he's probably doing okay. but we all bring this lens um, that we have that shapes even the best and highest
1: of us. Yeah. The the analogy I use, because in the Sufi tradition, they have this expression, kill your ego. Right. But from my psychotherapeutic point of view, you can't. It's not possible. In fact, it's not healthy. But what, I use Otto Rank's example. You know, he he said that the ego is a defense mechanism; it's an armor. And so, spiritual work consists of two things: one is to reduce the armor, and Enneagram work is a, a method for reducing your armor, right? And so, eventually, you'll end up with one of these Arab cloaks—you know, very flexible one. <laughs> yeah, that's, but you still got one. And I know my sheikh had preferences, and I know that he, you know, whatever. The real question is, and that's what the Enneagram cannot address, is who's inside the armor. And that's that's an experiential faith question. So spiritual work, we call it the gradual or progressive path and the sudden path. The progressive path is about reducing the armor. The sudden path is recognizing that everything is perfect as it is. But that doesn't get you anywhere either because, you know, you have all the neo-advaitans who are running around saying everything is perfect just as it is. I said, yeah, okay. Yeah. But then you end up saying, well, yeah, but why am I getting angry in traffic? <laughs> yeah, right. right.
2: So yeah. if we go back to your patterns and um, the managing of conflict, do we ever encounter conflict between your faith and your reason? And how do you handle that if you do
1: uh, no, and I think it's one of the reasons I teach this. Who am I? Course, right? And one of the things that I do is I I use uh, reason. Okay, let's let's approach it differently. From the from the spiritual point of view, heart is the organ of perception in the traditions. Mind is the organ of perception of differentiation. Its 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 task is to differentiate. It, it needs, that's how it works. In the alchemical view, the heart is the sun and the mind is the moon. So whatever is going on, that's why we use, we reflect, right? Because the true organ of perception is not something that's based in the mind. At least the mind as a Westerner conceives of it. In the Far Eastern traditions, mind is mind, mental, emotional. It's a much more complete definition. So reason has... Is, is what the job of the mind is. And as they say, you know, the mind is a great servant, but a terrible master. So when you want to understand the mind, you really need to temper it with the heart. And then it becomes a useful tool. So I don't really have a conflict here because I understand where... Science fits in, and much of what I teach in the Who Am I, like neurobiologically, I, you know, it's you have a particular way of perceiving. Psychologically, we have unconscious perception. Sociologically, we have unconscious perception. So, uh, there's a saying in in the in the Islamic tradition. It says, "People are asleep, and when they die, they wake up." Right. Mm-hmm. So it's about this asleepness, and reason can be one of your reasons for being unconscious, because you have it's another it's another belief system you know if it's simply just reason right then you get you don't get science you get scientism
0: if you had someone come to you that did have a really hard time reconciling their faith with reason or science or logic how how would you approach that
1: i get it all the time mm. that's why i don't i don't start from the premise of religion i usually start from the premise as to what do you know, Yanni, how did you acquire the your knowledge? Where does your knowledge come from? And out of all the possibilities in the universe, how come you're, you know. I actually use one very effective PowerPoint screen, which is completely white. And I say, this is everything that is could be known could not be known, every possibility, everything. And then I say, and what you know, and then I put very small dot in the screen. And I said, that's probably very generous, mm-hmm. right? So you're coming to me with an assumption that you know something. And that's the problem, right? Because even from the scientific point of view, you know, Harvard used to have a, a medical course that said what we don't know in medicine. And it's much more than what we know. It's the same thing. So... When somebody comes and I says, you know, I have this issue, I say, okay, I try to approach it from the, the knower, because if I can make you question what you know, then you're open to understanding other things, because even in whatever you know, it's going to be limited. And because I have a background, you know, I'm an academic. So most of the time, you know, people are terrible at defining things. Mario has the same issue. I think you know people just they use these terms spirit and soul and so hey, what are you talking about? Annie? Tell me what you mean. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how would you how would you yeah. define spirit or spiritual?
1: Well, it's the it's the key question to the whole issue because traditionally the Western tradition is body, soul, and spirit. In the Sufi tradition, it's body, heart soul, and spirit. Now, it's interesting that the word, the heart, in Arabic, the word for heart is qalb. Qalb, the verb for it means to turn. That means that it's the organ that turns towards that which is higher or can turn towards that which is lower. And in language, we have these expressions like, he's heavy-hearted, he's light-hearted, and in the pharaonic traditions, after, in the afterlife, your heart is weighed against a feather uh, in, in, in the judgment, right? So the heart and the circulatory system are all about that, symbolically speaking, about where is your the focus of your life been? Is it really heavy? You know, hard-hearted, light-hearted, right? So... Uh, the heart is what then kind of uh, determines where your focus is. Where your focus is, is what we call the soul. The spirit is a non-defined, what I think the, most of the, the Enneagram people call the essence. It's, uh, it's the individual aspect of the infinite, but it's specific. You know, it's a unique take on it. And again, to get into metaphysical descriptions, it's very difficult. And Sri Datta Maharaj, you know, one of the early Advaitans, he had a very nice description. He said, imagine that there is a room, and this room has walls and a ceiling and a floor. But what else makes up that room? He says, space. So what you get is the walls, the ceiling and the floor, and you decorate that room with all of your... Iness your possessions, your this your that, whatever but the the room holds space now is the space in that room any different than the space outside the room? no space is it any different than on Alpha Centauri? no it's still space right? So when you die the walls fall away but what remains is the space. That's an analogy for the spirit. So the spirit doesn't go anywhere. It's always there, but it's simply part of that infinite thing that we call space. It's an analogy. But the soul is what you invested that space with, you know, the walls, etc. It prefers, it's what my chef used to say, you have a palace, but you prefer to live in a broom closet. Because it's your familiar space. It's the thing that you're used to. It's your attachments. It's your habits. It's those things. And in a sense, that's why uh, you bring your own punishment. This is what the Tibetans say. And in, uh, in, in, an, in another story, it's a Sufi story, Bahlul, who was a famous Sufi Sheikh, he was the contemporary of Harun al-Rashid, the famous Sultan, and he used to advise him. Now this is apocryphal, and he may not be historically accurate. So Bahlul has uh, disappeared and Harun is looking for him. He keeps looking everywhere. Finally, he finds him coming out of the kitchen. He says, Bahlul, where have you been? I'm, I need your advice. He says, I went to hell. He says, what do you mean you went to hell? He says, I went to hell to get some fire. He said, why? He says, the kitchen ran out of fire. I thought I'd go to hell and find uh, get some fire. He says, what did you find? He says, there's no fire in hell. He says, what do you mean? He says, everybody brings their own. <laughs>
2: Mm. Uh, so uh, Creek and Riose will, uh, you know, tell you this, and um, I don't have a huge amount of respect for that many people. Uh, it's a it's a character flaw of mine, and um, <laughs> you're one of the people that I do. And even though I'm not on a spiritual path like you are, and um, you know, I I see some things differently. What I always admire about you is your ability to hold things lightly, to separate the experiential from, I don't want to say the rational, but the the conceptual, I guess, is a better way to to think about it. And I also appreciate that you're, in a way, an incrementalist, okay, Um, in that there's a path that one goes to. It's not, there's not a magic pill. For someone to take there's not a magic practice that will be transformative when we were together in cairo last time um you you talked about a process of grow flow glow mm, yeah, yeah i believe Dame, that Dame you Dame had, yeah can, can you share about that because for me it captures this incrementalism that we're always trying to recommend for people as well well
1: the, the fundamental thing that I, uh, you know, uh, I think this comes also from my study of the Zen tradition, is that you, one of the things that the human condition has to hold the paradox. It's, it's the one thing that you have to begin to accept, to hold the paradox. And the idea of uh, you know, achieving something and coming to some place and being something or whatever, this is not the space that you are as a human being. That's a, that's a conceptual idea of what enlightenment is, for example. And Dida's example is that he uses... Uh, he says that therapy or function is where and again it's an analogy he says imagine that you are a stained glass window and when you look down at yourself you notice that there are a lot of panes that are broken and you say oh my god i've got these broken panes,' you know and so when when you cannot function in some way I mean, he teaches it in sexual therapy, where, you know, you're you're approaching somebody and then you say, oh, I can't because I was abused as a child or whatever. So then you need therapy because you're lacking a function of some kind. And so most of the New Age stuff is about function. It's about reestablishing, you know, your inner child, your, you know, all of that stuff, right? Uh <laughs> You find me rather skeptical of them because I've been spending 50 years with these people. <laughs> well, look, you're yeah. doing good company here. So yeah, go, don't, I,
2: don't I, I only wish we had media on these podcasts, you know, because we be so much. <laughs> <gasps>
1: entertaining, yes. I so, so uh, no. yeah, so, so whenever there is a lack of function, Right uh, then, because in homeopathy we actually have the same tendency as in uh, the Enneagram where people try to make homeopathy a spiritual system. I said, are you out of your mind? It's a pathological system. Yanni, yeah, somebody has lost function and we're going to give them a remedy to help them reestablish function. That's the idea, right? So then he distinguishes that from flow. Flow is where you, you know that you're broken. Yanni, yeah, that awareness is there. And then you polish the glass to increase your ability to transmit the light, you know. And it has nothing to do with your brokenness. It can be a flow state in uh, an athletic sense or a flow state in an artistic sense or whatever. You could be, you know, an abuser of women but be a fantastic artist, right? Because, the, And people don't distinguish anymore because they think that one is the other. It's not. It's the fact that you can do a certain practice where you can get a particular flow going, right? And has nothing to do with your brokenness. And people have that experience. Often these are peak experiences or or whatever it is. And then glow is where you realize, and that's the metaphysical side, is that you are the light. You're not a stained glass window, and you're not the light. You're not trying to polish them. You are the light. And that's the same similar thing to the armor th- idea that y- you work on the armor, you, you have this thing working on your brokenness and making yourself more flexible, but who's inside? Hmm. How do you transmit that, that light? Yeah.
0: Well, Abdul thank you so much for for hopping on with us. Glad to to know that you are actually a person, and, and it's not just some someone in Mario's imagination. Um, That's it's, right. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the rabbit. Yeah, some rat- rat- that he talks to. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, thank you, thank you so much for for joining us um, on this podcast. And if people have questions or want to reach out, um, how how would they how would they do that? Email. Email. You can email
1: me. All yeah. Right.
0: And what, what would that email be?
1: A.H. Holdike. You'll have to get it from Mario. Okay.
2: <laughs> It'll be yeah. in the show notes <laughs> then. <laughs> <I hope. laughs> yeah. And which, which I think we should point out before we go—that's your real name, yes, or, or old dyke. Birth name, Two right? half
1: dikes yeah. make a whole dike. Yeah, got yes, it. Yes. Okay. And uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. my last good. name, my last
0: name is Creekmore, and everyone is like, "Wait, what?" So I'm like, "It's the opposite of Riverless." And yeah. That's how you do. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Okay. okay. Thanks for being with us. Thank After you. Pleasure. Nice to you. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram Podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awareness to action dot com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awareness to slash podcast.